I get nervous at borders. I don't know why. I usually haven't done anything wrong. Last time I crossed a Canadian border on foot, I was with a buddy on the west coast, going from Washington to British Columbia. There's a nice little crossing there which you can just walk through, but the border guards seem to go harder on walkers. They searched both our packs. My friend's mom had insisted he take pepper spray, or maybe bear mace. They took that from us without much of a fuss. They found pills and Russian packaging in my pack, which I'd forgotten about. I think they were antibiotics, which come in handy sometimes. My Russian doctor grandmother gave me a medical kit before I left for my first hitchhike, and I tend to just throw that in my pack. The border guards asked what the pills were. I pretended I couldn't read Russian and said, I don't know, but I think they might be stomach pills. You know, in case I eat something wrong. I didn't know if you were allowed to carry antibiotics without a prescription in Canada. They said if you're going to carry something, you should know what it is. Vaguely, I agreed, and they waved me through. I guess I could have carried pretty much any pills into Canada. Since then, I've tried to cross borders riding with someone. It just feels weird to spend too much time with cops' hands in my backpack. So though I've chosen the smallest border crossing in Vermont, which you're definitely allowed to walk through, I'm standing a little ways out, before the border, trying to catch a ride. Creed Bratton, musician and star of The Office, is kind enough to stop and take me across with him. On the way, we talk about his wild, worldwide hitchhiking youth. I grew up in a little town called Coarse Gold, California. I was born in Los Angeles, but when I was two, we moved up to Coarse Gold. I had about 300 people. And it was up on the road out of Fresno below Yosemite National Park in the foothills where gold was found back in the day. And I think it was my junior year, my sophomore year, I worked up at Lake Tahoe. I got a job as a box boy up there. The friend of mine's mom, she took me up and she brought me back. But next year she had to leave early. So I hitchhiked up over out of Nevada through over down through Tioga Pass to get back down to Corsico. So I was going through Nevada. And the very first ride I got, a truckster picks me up. I'm sitting there and said, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. <laughs> the guy reaches over and smiles at me. He grabs my thigh and gives it a big squeeze. <laughs> and so my hand comes out of my pocket and rips out of my pocket and bangs against the wall. And I'm shaking. And I'm looking at the guy and I said, pull over. Because uh, <laughs> that's not the way I wanted to go at that time, you know. That I, I told him, I said, look, I didn't even know what, I was so scared. I was so scared. I didn't know what was going on, you know. But I did, I mumbled something like, I, I don't want to hit you while you're driving. I don't want to break your job when you're driving or something like that. No, it was horrible. That should have been enough to stop me from doing something like that, you know. And right now, if something happened, like I said, hey, you know, uh, I appreciate you. Thank you. That's a compliment, I'm sure, but I don't go that way, you know. But it, it's, this is the first time anybody did anything, so I overreacted. I, I'll admit, I admit that, you know. So now we cut to, I worked and I worked and worked. I got a car, so I'm driving a car, and I don't have to worry about it. Now we cut to my senior year in college. I was in a drama class and did a scene and just wasn't going right. Just, I've been getting so much good response from my acting through high school and junior college stuff, the plays that I had done and stuff. And now I was, though, in a, in a drama class at a state college with a coach that had a good reputation and it wasn't flying like I wanted to in my mind. He said, you just need more life experiences. I'd recommend when you're through here, go off to Europe. 
and get some life experiences. And it resonated so strongly with me that I sold my Austin Healy. I told my buddy, Mickey Miguel, I said, hey, why don't we go to Europe? I'm selling my car. I'll pay your way over on this freight or we can get a freight. So our girlfriends, kind of reluctantly, or maybe, I don't know how they, they felt about it at the time because I was too excited about going, drove us to Needles, California. And we put out our thumbs in the road with our bag. We got these service bags, you know. Oh, yeah, like over-the-shoulder type things? Yeah, yeah, kind of like the, being in the Navy. Kind of yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, not a rucksack or anything. And the very first car, this is it, Andy, the very first car that stops to pick us up is going to Louisiana, New Orleans. That's where we were going. We said, we're going. He said, well, I'm going there, too. And that was it. He took us all the way there, and then we got on the freighter that I paid for. We got over there, and then within a short period of time, we were out of money. We started going away, basically, on trains. We went up to Scandinavia, and we'd get on trains. We'd hide. We'd try to stay ahead. We'd go up and move and move around, try to stay ahead of the guys collecting the tickets. Hide in the bathroom or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We got up there and got back, and it was kind of a game. We did that. I didn't think much about it at the time, you know. Right now, I would never do that, obviously. Well, Creed, the character might, but not me, this person. <laughs> so I get to Germany. He leaves. After eight days there, he misses his girlfriend. He's jealous. <laughs> he thinks he's with another guy. It turns out she was. So he flies back. And I don't have any money. Now I'm broke. So I'm working in Munich, in Germany, and I meet two guys outside a uh, American Express, and they're singing. And they're singing in the streets there. And long story short, I end up with them. We start hitchhiking. And now, here's the deal. Hitchhiking. How to approach this. We can't go together because there's three of us. Now we got guitars and we got rucksacks and things like that. And we have long hair now. <laughs> Starting to look for disreputable. So we hitchhike from Munich all the way to Gibraltar, across. We got a freighter. We played little clubs. We played in railway stations. We played outside cinemas. We busked. We were buskers. Then we started, we got better. We started booking gigs and clubs and things like that. Then we stayed in Tangiers for a while. We hitchhiked down to Fez. I should say that when you're hitchhiking, I suggest to people don't look like you're unhappy. Don't look like you're going to harm the people who pick you up. You should be smiling. Like you got some good stories to tell, but I think the most important thing, especially if you're traveling, and I, I myself wouldn't do it nowadays with the climate in the country. Certainly wouldn't hitchhike across North Africa where we ended up. Well, that's interesting though because I think North Africa was sort of seen as like this Barosian paradise in that moment, right? It was pretty great. It was it was great. There was a lot of Americans there too. There was little towns. I we got in some trouble. I got stoned out of one town. You know, <laughs> we got attacked by some wild dogs once. You know. But other than that, the Americans were okay. That was that was a good thing. That was a good time to do it, for sure. But not now. You wouldn't want to go over there. You wouldn't go to Syria, where I hitchhiked from Beirut through Syria and Lebanon and places. No, no, absolutely not. But I think you really have to have your intuition attuned so that when the car pulls up, you look in there and you suss out the situation ASAP. You let your intuition say, is this going to be safe? And if you feel like your guardian angels are there with you and you're going to be protected, it looks like a good thing, then you can proceed. You trust your gut on this stuff, I think. But if there's any doubt, if there's any trepidation or doubt 
I certainly would suggest people don't do it, you know, obviously. But did you ever have a moment where you did have that trepidation and doubt and got stuck somewhere for days on end? Yes, 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 absolutely. I couldn't speak the language. He was kind of, he couldn't associate. He was kind of, he was kind of surly. <laughs> get in, get out, go, whatever, you go, 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 come, go, come, what, I'm fucked, I don't care, you know. Oh, all right, I'll get in the, I'll get in the truck, you know, and you get in the truck, and all of a sudden, we drive it along, and then he goes, okay, out, and it's in the middle of fucking nowhere, right, <laughs> yeah. in Algeria, and you're, and you're on the fucking, there's one, luckily there's only one road going down the coast, <laughs> but still, some other roads, there's a side road, too, we're on a side road, and he gets out, and he takes off, he heads off into the fucking desert on this road, I'd say, well, fuck me, you know, <laughs> so I spent a couple of days sleeping on this fucking side of the road. I had a boat bag with water in it. it tasted like wine, and but I did have, thank God I had water in it. And I stayed there for a couple of days until somebody picked me up and got me back on the main road. And then I got to uh, uh, Libya. And I met up with, we ended up playing the Hotel Wadan. But sure, there's many times where you've got to know where they're going to drop you off too. That's important. Yeah. Some of you say, well, I don't have any place to be. You can take the chance. But there was a possibility that I got to get grabbed by bandits or whatever, you know. <laughs> I've always felt, though, at the time, I was protected by it. I said guardian angels before. I guess that's for want of a better word. That's what it felt like. But I had, the I fate. was on a quest. Yeah. And it was fate, and this is my destiny, and this is what I was supposed to be doing. And turned out, it was the best thing i ever done. Best thing i ever done was spend that time. So we ended up, we made a bunch of money in Libya, played at this hotel, and we signed up for, for a little tour with the mobile oil. But they flew us on that one. They flew us out in the, about 500 miles out in the Sahara Desert. We went all over the place there. point is, we got all the way over to Cairo, and we had money. So then we get, took a boat to Beirut. And then we hitchhiked from Beirut to Israel. Couldn't get through the Mandelbaum Gate. We didn't have enough money by then. So we had to hitchhike back to Beirut, work at that same club, the Kit Kat Club, for a while to make enough money. Then we hitchhiked back. And, and in the interim, we went to the Cedars of Lebanon. We saw all back, and uh, we saw some amazing stuff in Lebanon. But the thing is, with hitchhiking, people will go, oh, if you have music, if you have a guitar, and you can sing for your supper, people would have it. And they'd bring us in and put us in a back room and we'd sing and, and then they'd feed us. We sang for a bunch of villagers in Gibraltar. We put on an improved concert on the beach for a bunch of people in Gibraltar. Two days later, we we're sleeping in the caves in Gibraltar and all of a sudden these, this mariachi band came up <laughs> with, with all the villagers again and they serenaded us, which was like, they woke us up and it was like, wow. And see things like that. You, you can't buy. You can't buy stuff like that. Yeah, I've checked with some musical friends, and it's kind of amazing how that becomes a nonverbal connection point for people. Yeah, and and all you have to understand too that the people that listen to us have to understand that the, the people that picked me up didn't speak English. So you draw pictograms and you make sign language. Talk about food. You can go food. Go to the bathroom. I need to sleep. You know, yeah. God. Sun, rain, things like that. Universal symbols. You can make that stuff. But I think many times people are, they're, they're lonely. They're traveling long distances, you know, and they want some human companion in there just to talk. And then sometimes I'll sit there and listen to them talk in a foreign language that they don't understand and <laughs> nod knowingly. Yes, uh huh. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, gotcha. You have no idea, but it's okay. 
miles are going by and I'm getting to wherever I'm heading, you know? Yeah. People keep telling me, and people have always told me while I've hitchhiked, older people have always said, oh, I hitchhiked back in the 60s, but it was a golden age, and now you can't do that anymore. It, it was. It was. It was. I think well, how lucky we were, you know. And then I had got my draft notice because I was out of college. Done. So I had to go. I was, it was at the age, told me at the, uh, that I had to report to Berlin, to the army base there. We had just done this film in Israel called Cast the Giant Shadow. And we'd worked in this film, and I fell in love with the, the director's daughter, and we went to the Greek islands. She went back to L.A., and I knew then I had hitchhiked. So I hitchhiked from Greece to Berlin. And that time, it was Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Czechoslovakia. What was Yugoslavia like back then? That just seems like an amazing place. It was cool, but very primitive, you know? Very, very primitive. It was like in, in a medieval comic book. Like, do people really live like this? Yeah. And I didn't grow up with any money. I grew up in a very poor environment, a tiny little place. I had no money to speak of at all when I grew up. But then I remember coming through. I got a ride. We came into East Berlin. I came in through the east, through the back door. Yeah. And then we had to wait in the car until there was enough people there lined up. And then we had military escorts that took us all the way through this light of cars, took us over to the west. And then they came through the military, came through the gate, and they checked our passports and stuff and let us through. And then I went to the uh, military base. Luckily for me, my father died in the war. He was an officer, and I had a broken eardrum, so I had two strikes against me. And so I didn't have to go. Then I hitchhiked to Munich, back to Munich again, where I met the guys the first place, met up with them again. We played another Oktoberfest, our second one. <laughs> so we did two of those. We had a routine going now. And then we went to Paris and played, and then England and stayed. Then they left. We separated then. One of the banjo player went back to America, and the other guitar player, the acoustics guitar player, the gut string guitar, I should say, he went to Scandinavia. And I stayed there in England, and I ended up weighing about 145 pounds, just starving. Just couldn't, oh. couldn't. Then I went. Then I went back. And the last time I hitchhiked was coming from L.A. I got a ride from New York. Came over, and I got on a flight, and I flew back from Reykjavik. And then from Reykjavik, I got to uh, New York. And on the flight, I met this guy who was he had been buying cars in Germany. And he said, if I, if I wanted to split the gas with him, I could have to drive while we slept, and we'd drive nonstop to L.A. And that's what we did. But then I hitchhiked from Los Angeles up to Corsco, back to Corsco, to see my stepdad and my mom. Now I had the full hippie regalia with long hair <laughs> and stuff like this. As I was coming through Fresno, several people pulled over and wanted to beat the shit out of me, you know. Wow. And I realized at this time it was getting really dangerous. So I felt physically threatened at that time. What do you think brought about that change in mood? As xenophobia, you know, well, not we were foreigners, but fear of the unknown. Mm. You know, they don't understand things are changing and people can't keep up with it. They don't want things to change. And anything that's symbolic of change, like the music or the, the long hair or the, the clothes and stuff, it's fearful, fearful to the status quo. And I think that's why they get angry. They, they don't know. They're not that they're bad people. They're just fearful. That's all. I'm just kind of curious about how common hitchhiking was when you'd started out because i know that even in the 50s there was that ida lupino horror movie the hitchhiker well i didn't know too many people that did it so i didn't have any money so it just seemed like the way to, to go you know 
And, and I was a, you know, like six foot and muscular and uh, <laughs> athletic yeah. guy. Yeah, I felt like I could handle myself. And I never had any problems, except for that last time that I started feeling with, like, there's a few people there that could gang up on me that I, no, I don't, I don't, I don't like those odds at all. But they, they, they're in the 60s, you have to understand, even when the grassroots, even when I was in the band, the police, many, many times when we had problems with marijuana, stuff like that, they threatened to beat the shit out of us. They actually handcuffed us and threatened us with their sticks and stuff. Yeah, they were, they were scared of the counterculture thing, too, at the time. And, but in real, all rock musicians at that time in the 60s can tell you stories like that. My must not any different. Did you find that it was easier or harder hitchhiking in Europe than it had been through Nevada? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Much, much easier in Europe because they're more open to communicating with people, you know. They were standoffish, the Americans, you know. <laughs> you just leave them alone. They, they didn't really want it. They already knew what they wanted to do. But see, if you're in Europe and you're an American and you're different, they want to hear about it. They want to hear about Hollywood. They want to hear these stories, you know. In California, they don't give a shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just them rich, just them rich, rich LA tax, you know. <laughs> or uh, this thing, just screw you. <laughs> Not that we were then, but I just thought they were more open and understanding in Europe. You know, I, I like the people there a lot. I found the uh, Americans a little uh, cards closer to their chest and a little more fearful, I have to say. That's been my experience too in the last couple of years here. What about in Africa? In Africa, it was a more of a spiritual thing, you know. Ali knew God will provide. You're there, there, and they they would look at you and they put their hands together and give you the salam, and they're just there acknowledging the divine in you, which we all should. I think we should basically don't want to proselytize or anything, but that's what they did was they see the divine in things and people, and everything else is Ali knew God will provide. Let it be. Let it be. Let God take care of. Don't worry about all the small stuff. See the good stuff, and then everything else will be taken care of. And that's a good philosophy. It's a very good philosophy. I find that when people are hitchhiking, the conversations you have get down to the most fundamental things sometimes. They do, don't they? You get down to just humanity. You don't even have to talk about politics, which you shouldn't, you know, or religion. But you pretty find out that people, everybody everywhere, want security for their family. They want their grandkids to be safe. They want to have food on the table. They want to have a good laugh. And they don't want to think and worry too much about dying, you know. Even though they should really acknowledge that it's inevitable and being prepared is a good thing, too. But that gets a little morbid. And I tend to go that way and how to handle that in a good way rather than be fearful of it, you know. There's that whole sort of Heidegger strand of European philosophy of being towards death just sort of being aware of it while you're living. Yes, and I totally agree with that. And I was open far more to that by conversing with people in England, you know. And and then you find it in Germany and Switzerland, and there's a lot of people speak English there, too. And also the films, and watching the foreign films, my eyes and ears were opened up to a lot of stuff that American films wouldn't touch on, the existential angst of the whole thing. It wasn't just beach party bingo. <laughs> <laughs> And so that that was good for me as an artist. It opened me up to a lot of things, you know, that I wouldn't have if I had stayed in up in the mountains for sure. So, did you accomplish? Do you think what your acting teacher was encouraging you? I think so. I think I did. I think I definitely had some great experiences and opened myself up. I definitely had a successful music career, and then later on, got very very 
lucky. I mean, I worked very hard for, for years in the acting, you know. Good actors observe people. So when you're out there traveling around, you watch. And I'm always observing people. I always have been. That's part of the deal as an actor. The more people you meet, the more different kinds of people you meet. You just don't have a small microcosm. You, you see a lot of different people. And you talk to a lot of different people, a lot of different lifestyles, a lot of philosophies. And this is just far more stuff to draw from as an actor. You, and when you think about it, more things and you, you have your philosophy changed, it can't hurt. It can only help. There also seems to be in the characters you play a sort of weird freedom. Do you think that's something you learned while hitchhiking as well? I can't really say it's the hitchhiking aspect of it. I think it's just an actor you observe. Now, that character, a lot of people mistakenly believe that is me, you know. But he's a, he is a composite. His walk, if you ever notice the way he moves, he's half Charlie Chaplin, he's half <laughs> Jacques Tati yeah. in his physicality. My facial things are Jack Benny, George Goebel, Bob Newhart. Maybe a little Buster Keaton? A little Buster Keaton, too. A little Buster Keaton, too. A little Laurel, Stan Laurel, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Definitely Stan. We can see something. We get these big eyes. Yeah. But all the stuff that made me laugh, obviously, you, you synergize that into this amalgamation of stuff, and that becomes the thing that makes people laugh. And you, when you throw it all together, you, you create your own things. It's not just me. It's a combination of all the stuff that I've learned that's made me, made me laugh. So you just kind of throw it in a pot and bubble and squeak. <laughs> Mix it up with some eggs, and there you go. <laughs> you still live in California these days, right? I do, I do. I live in at Studio City. Do you ever see hitchhikers on, I don't know, Highway 1 or whatever? No, no, you don't see hitchhikers anymore in California. I mean, occasionally, I think you see people pointing to cars, going, can you, can you give me a ride? Can you give me a ride? But not, per se, the standard stereotypical standing on the corner with your thumb out. No. That was the deal. You'd stand right there next to your guitar. And the other thing, too, I put my guitar case up. And that was my symbol. That was my calling card. There's my guitar. I stand like that, and I had a big smile, my guitar, and then my thumb. And that was that was it. Your hitchhiker gimmick. Yep, that was my hitchhiker gimmick. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But if I had to in a situation, I would certainly do it again. Of course. If I, my car broke down and I couldn't get in of a phone, you'd have to, wouldn't you? You'd have to come pull somebody over, say, hey, can you, can you help me out? I need to get to this place. We would hope that people wouldn't chainsaw you to death. Or they would get you to where you're going. You can't worry about that stuff. Like, even back in the day, did you ever pick up hitchhikers? Yes, yes, I did. Of course, I did a lot, especially with my wife, Joanne, and I. I had a house in Malibu at the time, and we'd be coming back from L.A., and we'd see people hitchhiking along the PCH. Of course, we didn't put them in our back seat. But many times there'd be people from Europe, you know, we'd buy lunch or something, too. Karma. That's karma. You got to do that. You have to do. You have to be aware that you have to give back. Of course. We crossed the border without much trouble. A simple stamp. They never even saw my pack. It's a strange crossing, built in the middle of Derby Line and Stansted, which is technically two towns, but feels like one. 
People used to be able to walk across on most roads to get to the far side of town. They even built a library that straddles the border. Things changed after 9-11. They blockaded the roads, so now there are only two spots where you can cross. You gotta be careful how you walk into the library. But at least I'm in Canada. Past the comfortable and familiar stuffiness of the American Northeast, on the doorstep of Quebec. The border was maybe the biggest barrier in my way. This is a country where I can go as far north as I can get without any border guards to stop me. And I'll take whatever pills I want. <laughs>